1 Samuel chapter 19. As we are here in 1 Samuel chapter 19, things have escalated quickly between Saul and David. Saul has progressed from jealousy uh, to fear to premeditated murder. Uh, But all along, while that's happening, David is unaware. He doesn't know that Saul wants to kill him. He thinks it's the demon or he thinks it's, you know, these circumstances that he's in. And so Saul, David continues to serve Saul uh, with the best of intentions, hoping to be a blessing to his troubled king. Well, chapter 19, all that's going to change, because despite an oath before God to do David no harm that Saul makes in this chapter, he will claw, cross the line from secretly plotting David's death to ordering his execution, and David will flee. So <clears throat> chapter 19, beginning in verse 1, we're going to take a look at Saul's unstable heart. Actually, we'll begin in verse 30 of chapter 18. It mentions at the end of verse 29 that Saul became David's enemy continually. But then verse 30 says, then the princes of the Philistines went forth, and it came to pass that after that went forth that David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was much set by. And so Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all of his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David, and Jonathan told David, saying, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Now, therefore, I pray you, take heed to yourself until the morning, and abide in a secret place, and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will commune with you, uh, with my father about you, and what I see, that's what I will tell you." So we see here that in verse 30 of chapter 18 that David's reputation grows. We don't have the details again of this new campaign with the Philistines. It's initiated by the Philistines, uh, but we don't have any of the details. We just know that David went out to fight, which as a commander in Saul's army, that's what you do, and that David behaved himself even more wisely. So he even, he he grew in more stature and in uh, in more favor with the people uh, so that his name was much set by. The word there means precious and and well-respected. David was just loved more and more and more by those that he led and and those that he served. David, who had not sought for fame, becomes famous now. David, who hadn't sought for position or power, becomes one of the most influential people in all of Israel. And this increasing popularity pushes Saul over the line from attempting to kill David secretly to bringing his murderous heart right out into the open in chapter 19, verse 1. It says, And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all of his servants that they should kill David. That's uh, probably not the best translation. It's not a kill order. It, It literally just means that David needs to be killed. He's not telling them to kill David. He's just sharing his heart that David must be killed. There is no pretending it's the demon anymore, the, that, the tormenting thing that's making him try to stab David. There's no more trickery or manipulation trying to get David killed by sending him into dangerous situations in battle. Um, this is just all out. David needs to die, and he confides in his closest servants and his own son. Now, one of the themes we're going to see in this chapter uh, is that, uh, is that is it, it revolves around an important question. The question is, is loyalty to family the most important loyalty a person can have? Now, many cultures would answer yes to that question. But the Bible gives numerous examples of those who live otherwise, those who honor the Lord and don't have that priority. 
There, there are those who put doing the right thing, in other words, loyalty to the Lord as the highest loyalty, even if it means going against your family. That Saul brings Jonathan into his plans shows that Saul believed family loyalty was the most important thing because he knows Jonathan and David are close. He knows that they are very close, but he believes that Jonathan will pick him over anyone and anything else. And Saul is gravely mistaken because verse 2 says that Jonathan, Saul's son, because he delighted much in David, because he had an affection, this deep friendship with David, it says that he told David. The word there means to warn or inform on. He informed on his father so he could warn David, saying, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Now, Jonathan made a covenant with David, and he was not going to do wrong by going back on that commitment to David for anyone. He wouldn't do it for his father, and he wouldn't do it for his king. Not, certainly not when David's done nothing wrong. And so Jonathan has a plan. He says, now therefore I pray you, take heed to yourself until the morning. In other words, don't just come hanging out in your normal places. He says, you need to abide in a secret place and hide yourself all night. Verse 3, he says, this is, I have a plan. Jonathan has a specific place in mind that David needs to hide because he's going to try to change his father's mind in the morning. He says, I'm going to go out and I'm going to stand beside my father in the field where you are. So Jonathan has a specific place he, he thinks David needs to hide. And he says, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to talk to my dad so you, you can see us talking. And, and then I'm going to tell you, I will commune with my father about you. I'm going to talk to him about you. And what I see, what, what happens in that conversation, I will let you know. And that's going to determine whether you need to skedaddle or whether everything's going to be okay. And so David does this. Verse 4. And Jonathan spoke good of David unto his father and said unto him, Let not the king sin against his servant, against David, because he has not sinned against you. And because his works have been to you, you word, very good. Jonathan here confronts the evil of his father's plan. He tells him, he says, let not the king sin against his servant. While Jonathan had a deep friendship with David, this was his main concern and the main reason why he would not support his father. What his father was planning to do was wrong. It was wrong. And no loyalty should ever be higher than the Lord. No friendship should ever compete with the Lord. And no Christian should ever ask a family member or friend to choose them over the Lord. Never. There are many, many cultural ideas in our world that go against the priority system set up by the Lord. Some cultures will place family higher than everything, and they will encourage disobedience to the Lord because family comes first. Some cultures will place loyalty to one's country as the highest calling, and they will encourage disobedience to the Lord because nation or ethnic group comes first. These are obviously and clearly wrong. But there are lesser violations of this principle that are far more common. Some cultures say your commitment to your parents should come above commitment to your spouse. This is a frequent thing that occurs in, in counseling for us when we're trying to minister to married couples. Some say that your commitment to your work should come above your commitment to your family. Some say commitment to one's children should come above your spouse. That is a very common one even within the church. But all of those ideas disobey the Lord's commands. As a Christian, you must not give in to them. These are cultural ideas, not biblical ideas. And to give in to them means you become partaker of other people's sins. Now, 
When someone asks you to do something wrong, to choose them instead of choosing what's right, it doesn't need to mean you need to pull out your sword and challenge them to a duel, you know? What? I can't believe you'd ask me to do that. Jonathan reasons with his father here, and he does it by pointing out two things, the evil of killing David, and then secondly, the good reasons why he should treat David correctly. First off, he points out the evil. He says two things are evil about your plan, Dad. He says, number one, because David has not sinned against you, and number two, his works towards you have been very good. He says, I'm sorry, first he says that because David's your servant, and secondly he says because he's done nothing wrong to you, he's only done you good. David was Saul's servant. When you have a servant, it means you're in the position of authority. You're in the position of power. And it is evil to abuse that position of power. Those with power are supposed to protect those under their care, not harm them. They're supposed to serve those in their care, not use them. And then also what was wrong is that David had done him no wrong. Saul was assuming or acting upon an assumption of motive. And it is evil, it is an evil act to act on an assumption of motive. David did nothing wrong to Saul. There was no reason that Saul should act the way he's acting. Saul should have believed the best about David, not the worse. Now, having listed out the evil of killing David, Jonathan now moves on to show the good reasons why Saul should treat David well. In verse 5, he explains, his works towards you have been good. How? For he did put his life in his hand, and he slew the Philistine, and the Lord wrought a great salvation for all of Israel. He says, Dad, David risked his life to take on Goliath when no one else in Israel would. He is loyal to you. Isn't that a good thing? Isn't that something that should be celebrated? Isn't that something that should be honored? And secondly, God used what David has done. God used David to do great things, to rescue our nation. Isn't that a good thing, Dad? Isn't that something that should be treated well? I absolutely love Jonathan the person. He is someone I want to meet when I get to heaven. Jonathan doesn't hold back confronting his father's evil but he does so in a reasonable way. Because you see, his goal isn't to win an argument, it's to win over his father. That's his goal. It's not to win the argument. I've won lots of arguments and still lost. His goal is to win over his father to righteousness. Jonathan is a great example about how to live in the midst of challenging circumstances, a great example. He loves his father. He remains loyal to his father. He wants what's best for his father. But Jonathan never shies away from speaking truth to his father's sins. Never. Remember, remember last time his dad messed up? And Jonathan's out and the armies, they're all exhausted because he, he makes everybody swear an oath and a promise that they're not to eat anything until the Philistines have all been slain. And everybody's like, oh, oh, wish we could eat, you know. And Jonathan doesn't, he wasn't there for that. And so he sees honey. God provides honey on the ground for sustenance. And, you know, Jonathan's hoofing it and he dips his staff in and he's licking it while he's running and stuff. He's getting some sustenance and somebody sees him chewing on the end of his staff and he's like, what are you doing, man? Your dad made us all promise. You know, we couldn't do this. And Jonathan goes, I didn't promise that. That's a dumb promise. 
He says, my father has caused great evil in Israel today with this unwise oath. He has no problem calling out his father's sins. But again, he loves his father. His desire is to win him over. And what's cool is, as he closes out his argument here in verse 5, he says to him, you saw it, Dad. You saw it and you rejoiced. So why then will you sin against innocent blood to slay David without a cause? You approved of all those things. You didn't have a problem with what David did back then, Dad. And so why would you go back on all that now? Since David's done nothing wrong, but only good, putting him to death will put you in the wrong, Dad. And somehow, <laughs> his words end up being enough to, bring, to break through Saul's jealous rage. And so Saul, verse 6 says, hearken unto the voice of Jonathan. And Saul swear, as the Lord lives, he shall not be slain. And so Jonathan called David, and David showed him all these things. He said, this is what my dad said. He made a promise. He promised as the Lord lives. He swore an oath to God that he will not kill you. And so Jonathan brought David back to Saul. And he was in his presence as in times past. Everything seems fine. Now, when you say, as the Lord lives, that is one of the strongest oaths you can make. Because what you're basically saying, the oaths aren't just words, they have meaning. The idea is, you can count on what I'm about to promise as much as you can count on the fact that the Lord is real. That's what he's saying. You can count on what I'm promising to you as much as you can count on the fact that God is real, that he is not dead, and that he always will be alive. As the Lord lives, this is my solemn oath. This is my promise. So this is a big deal. Now, I believe with all my heart that Saul meant what he said when he said it. Why? Why would you say that, Pastor Will? Because making an oath like this isn't something someone does lightly. And because Saul has numerous moments like this where he recognizes, where he confesses that he's in the wrong, and then he turns away from an evil course of action temporarily. Remember when David finds Saul in the cave and the men are like, God has delivered him into your hand. Kill him, man. And then we could be done from running from this fool. And David goes in to do it. And he gets convicted just by cutting the hem of Saul's garment. And he comes back to his men and he goes, I, I cannot do this sin. It is not my job to kill him. It is the Lord's job to deal with him. And so when Saul comes out of the cave, David actually, I mean, David puts himself in a place where he's a dead man if Saul turns on him. And he comes out and he shows him the hem of the garment. He says, oh, king, I could, I could have killed you, but I didn't because I, there's nothing I've done wrong. I don't have anything against you. I don't want your kingdom. I'm loyal to you. And Saul cries. That's one of the weirdest things. He goes, is that the voice of David, my son? He's his son-in-law, remember? They were close at one point in time. Is that the voice of David, my son? It is, king. David, I've done wrong. He confesses his sin and he picks up the whole army and they leave. Now he's back on David's trail again a few months later. But the idea is this is a, a common thing for Saul. I think he meant it when he said it. But it never lasts. And the reason it never lasts 
is because confession of sin is not the same thing as repentance from sin. It's just not. Confession acknowledges my wrong. The word confession, it means to say the same thing, homologio, to say the same thing. In other words, God, you say this about my behavior, and I'm going to agree with you. It's bad. That's confession. But repentance is a commitment to do what's right, to turn around. And so, despite his oath here to never slay David, and despite a small respite for David, it doesn't last. And so in verse 8, it tells us, and, saw, and there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and slew them with a great slaughter, and they fled from him. And the evil spirit from the Lord was upon Saul as he sat in his house with his javelin in his hand, and so David played with his hand, played the harp. And Saul sought to smite David even to the wall with the javelin, but he slipped out of Saul's presence, and so he smote the javelin into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Now, things seem to be fine for a while. David's, you know, taking his normal slot in the kingdom. He's there before Saul, and there's no issues. But David is an integral part of another victory over the Philistines. And so this sets Saul in a rage again. And so what should have been a cause for great celebration, Saul is brooding instead of celebrating. And so as this evil spirit from the Lord is upon Saul again, because even though Saul changed his mind about David, he even swore a serious oath, he never repented of his sin. So his heart remains full of this rebellion against God and this jealousy toward David and this fear of David. And the truth is, no oath, no oath, no promise, no, no raising your hand or coming forward is strong enough to counter a life where my flesh is in charge like that. In Romans chapter 7, verse 18, Paul describes the challenge that we face if we're going to try to do this on our own, in our own way. He says, For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I cannot find it. What is, what is Paul saying there? He says, I may have the desire to do what's right, but I don't have the resources to put it into place. You may have the greatest plan in the world for a home. But if you don't have a penny to put to it, you're not building it. And what, what Paul is explaining here is the best of intentions are, may be there in my heart and in my mind. But on my own, left to myself, this flesh brings no resources that I can pull from to live it out. And so, in contrast to a life where the flesh is in charge that has no resources to accomplish anything that's good, the life of the Spirit, I can do those things. In Romans 8, verse 8, it, Paul goes on to say, so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. In Romans eight twelve, he says, therefore, brethren, we are not debtors to live to the flesh to live after the flesh, because if you live after the flesh, you will die. There is no way that if I'm going to rely on my own resources and my own way of doing things, that I can even act out the best of motives and the best of promises. And so instead of being able to follow through with his oath, this instability in Saul's heart translated to unstable behavior. The Bible calls this being double-minded. Saul doesn't want to do evil, but he also doesn't want to submit to the Lord. And I hope I don't have to tell you that that doesn't work. <laughs> 
It doesn't work. I've tried that on many occasions, you know. If I want to do what's right, but I don't want to submit to the Lord, I'm not going to be able to move forward. There are many occasions where I'm like, okay, Lord, oh Lord, I want to do what, I want to, I want to follow you. I want to do what's right. And the Lord's like, okay, go make things right with so-and-so. Oh, no, Lord, that, no, no, that's not what I mean. You know, like, like I want to do right what's here. Over here, you know, we'll talk about that later. And the Lord's like, no, we're going to talk about it now because I can't allow that to just exist in your heart undealt with. Well, Lord, I don't want to deal with that. I'm going to harden my heart. Well, then... What happens when you do that is you grieve the Holy Spirit, and and your flesh is in control. It's on top, and they that are in the flesh cannot please God. If we do that, we begin to wilt. We begin to to wither. We begin to, to die, in a sense. James chapter 1, verse 8, it talks about a double-minded man being unstable in all of his ways. It says in James 1, 8, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. What does that word unstable mean? It means restless, unsettled, disorderly, unrestrained. When I'm double-minded like this, I I don't have the same restrainers that I would normally have. I'm unsettled. I'm, I'm restless in my heart. I'm disorderly. Saul's life, his entire life, will be a roller coaster because his heart's out of control. And that comes from being double-minded. Now, there is only one solution to being double-minded, and James gives it later on in the book of James. In James chapter 4, verse 6, it says, but he gives more grace. He says, where do all, all your arguments and fighting and warring and murder, where does it all come from? He goes, because you want something and you're not getting it. And so you're going to find a way to get it. He says, that's not good. (laughs) That's the way the world lives. Don't you realize? I love James. He's speaking to people who are being persecuted, people who are losing their lives for Jesus. And he's like, you adulterers and adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? You're like, James, settle down, buddy. These people are struggling. But James knew that if they took the world's mindset, if they were going to respond to this persecution, if they were going to do it and, and say, well, we're going to fight fire with fire. We're going, to, we're, going to, we're going to do this. is the only way we can survive. This is the only way we can do it. He's like, that doesn't work. You can't fight Satan with Satan. Don't you know that, that the Spirit of God who lives within you, he, he's jealous. He wants you to do it his way, and he's never going to be, he's never just going to go, ah, fine, just go be like the world. So it doesn't work. What you need is more grace. How I need more grace. Ugh. How I need more grace. I need more of God's help, more of God's, you know, work in my life. I need supernatural help. And so he tells us, well, how do you get more grace? He says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace unto the humble. Don't you believe, I do, don't you believe that if Saul came to the Lord and he said, Lord, I'm scared you know, you're not with me anymore, and, and I've made all these dumb mistakes, and I don't think there's any way I can fix it, and, and, and I'm scared if I obey you that it's all going to fall apart. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do it, but I know I need your help. Don't you think that if Saul came to the Lord like that, that God would have given him more grace? 
God is not up there expecting that you just get everything right and you do it perfect. (laughs) He knows our frame that we're simply dust, right? But he says, you gotta humble yourself. If you're gonna just stubbornly look at what I'm saying and say, no, that'll never work, and you just keep plowing ahead on your way of doing things, he's like, I can't, I can't work with that. You are hardening your heart towards me. You're being stubborn towards me. You're being prideful and arrogant. And that's, I can't give grace in that instance because you'll just barrel down that road more. But if you humble yourself and you go, Lord, this is a mess. I'm scared. I don't know what to do. I'm jealous of David. He does everything right and I do everything wrong. And Lord, if I, I think if I just trust you, I'm just done for. God is sympathetic with that. His heart, it breaks for us when we cry out to him like that. He knows our frame that we're simply dust. And so that's why he tells us, therefore, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Does that mean that God just wants to go on moping? No. These are, remember, James is Jewish, man. He's Jewish to the core. And what do they do when they're in repentance? They put on sackcloth. They, they put ashes and dust on their head. These are visible outward signs of a heart that's broken and shattered because of my own sin. That's what he's saying, do. Repent. Repent. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, verse 10 says. And you don't have to be afraid. He shall lift you up. Amen? Isn't that great news? No one likes being confronted with the fact that you're off base. Nobody, I don't like having to come to the Lord and go, I'm a mess, aren't I? Like, I'm just off here, aren't I? I'm like, my attitude's bad. Like, like, I need to repent, don't I? Yes, son, you do. This is not me at all. Where do I go from here? I mean, if I, if I do this, then I'll look weak or I'll look, you know, I mean, all the things that we think of. It's okay to have that conversation with the Lord. Because he'll lift you up as you say, Lord, I don't see how it's going to work out, but I choose to trust you. I submit to you. Take this thing, Lord, that's yucky right now and all nasty in my heart, and I confess it as sin, and I repent of it. Will you wash me, cleanse me, and do a new thing in me? He will. He does. He gives more grace. Love in John chapter 1 when it says, and the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And then in another part there it says, and he gives grace upon grace. And the, the, the image there, it's, in, it's like a present continual concept where it just says, he just gives grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. It just keeps coming if we just stay humble. Now, if you find yourself, like you, you would say, well, that's me. I'm on that spiritual roller coaster Saul's on. Well, then you need tons of grace, and God wants to give it to you. But you need to humble yourself. You, know? you need to submit to God. You need to resist the devil, draw near to the Lord, cleanse your hands, purify your heart. How do you do that? Well, well it starts by investing time into your spiritual life. 
You know, things aren't just going to magically change if you refuse to invest into your spiritual life. If you won't spend time talking to the Lord in prayer about things, then it's not just going to magically change. If you won't spend time in the Word letting Him shine the light on your heart to expose the things that aren't good, then things don't just magically change. Things will not magically change if you refuse to uh, invest time into your spiritual life, no matter how many promises you make to God or to other people. But when you humble yourself and you submit to God by choosing to invest time into your spiritual life, well, God will give you grace upon grace upon grace upon grace, and you will begin to change. It's his promise. Now, Saul didn't do any of that. (laughs) So when David comes in to soothe his torment as he's going through this mess again, uh, Saul breaks his promise. So the evil spirit from the Lord was upon Saul as he sat in his house with a javelin in his hand. And David played with his hand. Verse 10, and Saul sought to smite David even to the wall with a javelin. It means he looked for an opportunity to spear David. But David slipped away out of Saul's presence. David had seen that movie once before, and he was not playing his part in it this time. And the idea, that the way the chronology works here in the, in the Hebrew is the idea that Saul actually doesn't get a shot off. He actually doesn't take a swipe at David. David just starts seeing where this is going, that Saul's kind of eyeballing him, and he's like, ah, I think that's all the music I got for tonight, and he's out. And, uh, and what happens is, is the idea, it's not that Saul slams the spear trying to hit David, but that this is his reaction when David leaves. The idea is that he is so angry when David leaves, he just slams his spirit into the wall, his spear, spirit, his spear into the wall, and, and, uh, and he says, you think you're going to get out of here, David? Uh-uh. So David fled and escaped that night, but look at what Saul says in verse 11. It says, but Saul also sent messengers to David's house to watch him and to slay him in the morning. Uh, I've heard about going postal, but I've never seen messengers do this to me. Uh, The word messenger here means an informer, someone who would normally do surveillance, but in this case, they're going to be assassins. They're sent there to kill David uh, when he comes out of his house in the morning. And so it says that Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, if you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be dead. You'll You'll be slain. So Michael somehow... She either notices these guys watching, or maybe she just knew her dad well enough to know they're not here to keep an eye on you, David. They're here to kill you. Whatever the thing was, she knew if, he was, that her, if her dad was willing to break his oath to the Lord to not kill David, that he would not stop here and stop there. So when she sees Saul's men keeping watch, she tells David, if you want to live to see tomorrow, you need to get out of here tonight. And so, verse 12, Michael let David down through a window, and he went and fled and escaped. And then Michael took an image, a teraphim. These are household idols, usually family heirlooms that the Canaanites passed down. He, she took one of these family heirlooms, these family gods, and laid it in the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair for his bolster, for his pillow, and then covered it with a, a, a cloth, a bed sheet. Um, this is kind of our first introduction to Michael the person. Um, we've heard about her before, that her and David had a close friendship, and then, of course, they get married. Uh, but here we meet her for the first time in Scripture actually doing anything. And, and while there is much to criticize about Michael's behavior in the big story, um, she sides with what's right here instead of siding with her father. Uh, her priorities are with her husband, even though she loves her father. And 
it is a very manipulative thing that people say, well, if you really loved me, you would do this. Don't ever listen to someone who tells you that, they, that you don't care or you don't love them because you choose to put the Lord in biblical priorities first. Don't ever listen to that. That is a painful lie from the enemy to hear, and I know it hurts, but don't listen to it. Now, David, he's smart enough to listen to his wife's advice. I know many husbands who refuse to listen to their wife's advice. Listen, God created Eve because it wasn't good for Adam to be alone, right? That's what the Lord says. That wasn't just to solve Adam's loneliness problem. The Bible calls her a helpmeet. It means a helper who comes from the opposite direction, a teammate who comes from the opposite direction. Ignoring the help that God sends you does not make you strong. It doesn't make you a good leader. In fact, it makes you unwise. So my encouragement to you tonight is don't be a foolish husband. Take what your wife says to the Lord. Every husband should be praying about anything their wife brings up to them. And every wife should feel comfortable bringing something to her husband if she has a concern. I don't ever want Beverly to feel like she can't talk to me about something or I might react in a bad way or I might not listen or I might not take it seriously. Every wife should sense that her husband cares enough about her and believes that they have been brought together for a purpose. That she, he, would, he should take, she should feel comfortable bringing the concerns of her heart to him. Now, while Michael is in the right here, what we see next gives us a glimpse into some of her flaws. Verse 13, to cover up David escaping, she takes, and then it tells us, the family idol. Now, I can't imagine David having a family idol, or if his family had one, I can't imagine David ever taking one. However, we already know later on that Saul has no problem going to consult witches, right? He consults the witch of Endor. So it's not a stretch to see that Saul, for whatever reason, may have thought it was okay to have this family idol, and then when Michael got married, maybe gave it to her. Um, Whatever Michael's reason is for having this idol, the Lord strictly forbids them in Israel. Maybe she saw it just as a piece of art, like a family art piece or whatever. Whatever the case may be, the Lord forbid it in every way. So whether Michael's an idol worshiper or just going with family tradition, this thing has no business being in the house. And so we do see that there, there is a spiritual flaw here. Now, she puts this thing in the bed to make, pretend like it's David. And so when Saul, verse 14, sent messengers to take, to arrest, to seize, seize David, she says, well, he's sick. And so, and then, of course, she shows him, look, he's in the bed, he's sick. And so Saul sent the messengers again to see David, saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may slay him. In other words, Saul doesn't care he's sick. If David's too sick to walk, then bring the whole bed, and I'll kill him there. And when the messengers were come in, behold, check this out, not David. It's a little idol, little statue in the bed with a pillow of goat's hair for his uh, pillow, his bolster. And so Saul says, now brings Michael in. She comes with the the messengers, and Saul says unto Michael, why have you deceived me so, and sent away mine enemy that he has escaped? When the truth is known, Saul is incredulous that his daughter would choose her husband over him. He's incredulous. And yet, what does the Bible say when someone leaves, when gets married? Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, and surely that applies to the woman as well, and cleave to her husband, to her spouse. Cleave to her wife, I mean. 
cleave to his wife. Might work in some churches today. Not this one. Don't be that person that demands that others put you above everything else, even the Lord. Saul will constantly, constantly, all throughout, all throughout his life, be surprised that godly people do the right thing instead of side with him. He was, felt that way with Samuel. He feels that way with Jonathan. He feels that way with Michael. And it's going to happen over and over and over again with people who choose the Lord over him. And he's shocked every time. And it ruins all of his most meaningful relationships until Saul is a very lonely man. The only person he can go consult is some witch that he's banished to try to find answers. You will live and die a very lonely person if you demand that others put you above everyone and everything else. Please don't do that. Now, Michael's response is equally not good. Michael answered Saul, well, he said to me, let me go, for why should I kill you? Rather than speak hard truths to her father like Jonathan did, Michael accuses David of threatening to harm her. I had to let him go, Dad. He threatened to kill me. I'm not disloyal to you. He threatened to kill me if I didn't let him go. And this lie will become the first piece of evidence that Saul uses to turn many of his leaders against David. He threatened my daughter. He wants my kingdom. He is not our friend. He is our enemy. And thus Michael shows that even though she does a right thing overall, she's got some serious spiritual issues, some serious spiritual flaws. And these flaws will follow Michael throughout the rest of her life. They will show themselves and they will follow her because she never really deals with them. And eventually, it turns her into the equivalent of her father. She turns, becomes a bitter, lonely woman. When you have an opportunity to be light, even when it puts you at risk, trying to protect yourself by shifting blame or coloring yourself in a better light is always darkness. It's never light. Let's be those who are light. Amen? You know, let's love others enough to tell them the truth reasonably, but tell them the truth even at risk to ourselves. So David gets away. But where does he go? Where can he go? He can't go to family. Well, the only place, he goes the only place that a wise person does go. He goes to someone who does love the Lord to find out what to do. And so in verse 18, so David fled and escaped and came to Samuel, to Ramah, that's Samuel's home. And he told him all that Saul had done to him. And so he and Samuel went and they dwelt in Naoth. And it was told Saul, saying, behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. This is the first recorded conversation that we have between Samuel and David since Samuel anointed David to be king, which is interesting to me because they may have interacted afterwards. I have no clue. But if they had had not interacted at all, you, you would think that Samuel would have been more involved. But there's no indication either way, but this is an interesting time that they meet and it says that David just pours his heart out to, to Samuel. He tells everything that Saul did. 
And when Samuel hears about how much farther Saul has fallen, he knows, David, we can't stay in my house. If, Saul, if Saul's going to break an oath to the Lord to kill you, he is not going to hesitate to kill me. And so his thought is perhaps he will listen to a group of prophets who stand up to him. And so they go to Naoth. The word Naoth means residence or building. Most Bible teachers, the rabbis taught that this was the place where Samuel's school of prophets was. So basically he's like, let's not stay at my house, let's go to the Bible college, you know? Let's go to the Bible college, there's a bunch of people there who love the Lord, and let's see if together we can all convince Saul to stand down on, in, in his treatment of you. That's Samuel's thinking here. He knows there's nowhere they can run to get away from Saul because Saul's the king. But he thinks maybe if we go and we provide, present a united front of godly men you know, that say, Saul, this is wrong, that maybe then we can convince him to back down. Now, when Saul gets news of this, it does not deter him. He sends a squad of soldiers to arrest David, but it does not work out quite like he'd hoped. Verse 20. So Saul sent messengers to take David. Again, these are uh, soldiers to arrest David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, so when they get to the school of prophets, when they get to the Bible college, for lack of a better term, and they, Samuel's standing as appointed over them. So he's there. The phrase there means to stand in front as their leader. When they see him there, it says the Spirit of God was upon the messengers of Saul, and then they also prophesied. And when it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they prophesied likewise. And then Saul sent messengers again the third time, but they prophesied also. Now, if you just read your Bible here, I'll be frank with you. I read this, and I thought, I don't want to teach this, because it's a little weird, isn't it? What is going on here? When we think of prophesying, in the mo for the most part, when we read about it in the Scripture, it's just what I'm doing right now, teaching. It's, it's, it's sharing the Word of God. Certainly, it is times when you have like Elijah saying, thus saith the Lord, it's not going to rain for, you know, X amount of years. Uh, it's a time when Isaiah says, you know, thus saith the Lord, here's the Word of the Lord. Certainly, there are times when it means that. But most of the time in Scripture, it refers to those who are teaching the Word of the Lord. They are teaching God's Word. So, What's weird is, we go back to the start in verse 20, these messengers come, and what they first see is they see a company of these prophets, these people that, that Samuel has trained up, and they are prophesying, they're teaching. So what does that mean they're doing? Does it mean they're all just, you know, saying, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord? I mean, that sounds weird. You know, I mean, is it just a cacophony of voices, all just, you know, confusingly preaching, you know, at the same time? Who are they preaching to? Are they just all talking to nobody? That sounds weird. It seems a whole lot more likely that each of them had prepared a sermon to preach to the soldiers to show their unity in, in condemning Saul's arrest order. So at, that when these guys show up, these soldiers show up, one by one by one, probably short sermons, they just begin to teach. And they say, listen, the word of the Lord is this. What Saul is telling you to do is wrong. And one by one by one they do this with the finality of Samuel standing as the leader saying, and I am in agreement with this. That seems to be the most likely thing that's going on here to me because I cannot see any biblical way it's the other thing. So, I would propose then that when the last sermon was finished, that God's Spirit fell on the soldiers with such conviction that they began to share Scripture too. They began to preach as well. And this happens with three different squads of soldiers. 
Now, if you think, well, I think you're just trying to take a weird passage and make it normal, maybe you're right. But there's one other thought I want to throw out at you, and it's this, that God in the New Testament through the Apostle Paul says that he has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. Can you think, I don't have to say this, I think the world has already communicated very clearly that it believes that it is useless to just get up and preach when there are problems going on around you. That you need to do something. And yet the Lord says that he has chosen the foolishness of preaching to affect lives. It's a thought. I can't think of anything that would be sillier from a world's perspective, from just a carnal, earthly perspective, than a bunch of dudes coming out and going, well, before you rest, David, we'd like to say something. And then a bunch of them just kind of preach small devotions. It sounds absurd, and yet it works. (laughs) Because God takes the foolish things of the world, and he confounds the wise. He takes the weak things of the world, right, to put to shame those things that the world calls strong. And you know what? While preaching may seem like a weak way to combat evil, If God says he chooses the weak things of this world to confound the wise, then I'll take what man calls weakness over what man calls strength any day if God calls it true strength. And I'm absolutely convinced that was what Samuel was thinking too. Now, whatever happened here, the results clearly frustrate Saul. And so, with a hardened heart, he strikes out for Ramah with plans to not be dissuaded from killing David by anyone's sermon or anyone's whatever. And so in verse 22, it says, Then went he, Saul, also to Ramah, and he came to the great well Sechu. And he asked and he said, Where are Samuel and David? This blows me away. Sechu is, it means lookout hill. So this is a place basically where you could see the whole area. So there's, this is somewhere where probably they've got scouts. Just remember, they're kind of at war with the Philistines all the time. So there's people out here just keeping an eye on the surroundings. And Saul, <laughs> he's coming up to a bunch of prophets, not soldiers. He's coming up to David, who is alone, and nobody's with him aside from a bunch of prophets. And he comes up to this lookout tower, and he's looking around, and he's like, where's Saul? Where's Samuel? I know they're probably out to get me. I mean, this guy is paranoid. He is absolutely in the mindset that David is out to get him. And what's interesting is that whatever they had planned to dissuade Saul, it's not even necessary. Saul doesn't even make it to a sermon hearing or whatever these prophets were doing. Because it says, when they tell him, behold, they be at Naoth and Ramah, that he went hither, verse 23, to Naoth and Ramah, and the Spirit of the Lord was upon him also before he gets there. And he went on and prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. And then when he gets to the Bible college, when he gets to the school of prophets, it says that he stripped off his clothes also. So in addition to the preaching he's doing, he strips off his clothes and he prophesies before Samuel the same words that he was saying as he was on the way, in like manner. And then he lay down naked all that day and all that night, wherefore they say, saw also among the prophets. Now, these verses are pretty self-explanatory, so we'll close there. Sound good? What in the world is going on here? <laughs> it's one of those things you read, you're like, really? Okay. <laughs> Chapter 20 sounds interesting. 
Saul doesn't even make it to whatever the prophets had planned to dissuade him. God's Spirit falls on him in such a powerful way that he starts preaching a sermon on the way, and he does so until he reaches Samuel's school. And then when he gets there, he tears off his clothes. That's what the word stripped himself means. Now remember, that you have to think Jewish again. While we would look at that and go, why are you taking off your clothes, man? People did that back then because they would be showing mourning. They would tear their clothes, take them off, and then they would begin to throw dust on their head as a sign of mourning or repentance. Sometimes you would do it when a horrible thing happened in your life. We lost a loved one. It's a sign of mourning, a sign of repentance. It's not an action that Saul's just like, ah, I want my clothes off, you know? He, he's showing and displaying outwardly inward mourning. The word naked doesn't mean he wasn't wearing anything. The word just actually means inadequately clothed, a sign of shame and indignity in that culture, which is why they did that when they were in mourning. It doesn't tell us the content of Saul's sermon, just that he remained unclothed, and that the words that people heard him say were so impactful that some of them said, I think Saul should be considered a prophet. Did you hear that sermon? Did you hear what he was preaching? Did you hear what he was saying? It was, wow, it was amazing. And those two things, I think, give us an indicator of what Saul probably said. That Saul remained inadequately clothed communicates his shame over his behavior. I imagine he was confessing the evils of his heart and that it was wrong to have a heart like this. And that his words were impactful to the people around him who heard it means that he likely spoke of what needed to change, of what a righteous person does when they're in this awful spiritual state. How can a guy go from wanting to murder somebody to that? How can a guy have murder in his heart in one moment and preach a powerful sermon the next? I don't think you need to look farther than your Facebook feed because most of us are probably very familiar with what happened with Ravi Zacharias recently. Yes, I did say his name. It's heartbreaking. How does a man who was used so powerfully of God, who seemed to have such an impact and probably did have an impact on a lot of people's lives, how could that be going on the same time all these awful, wicked things were going on? Well, we see it here. It happens more than you think. It's why men and women who are used mightily by God do fall. Saul wasn't dim-witted. He wasn't an ignorant man. He was stubborn, and he was selfish. And you know, one can know the right thing to do and tell others the right thing to do, but refuse to do it yourself. That's possible. Now, the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. Who anointed Saul? The Lord. Who picked Saul? The Lord. Who used Saul? The Lord. So, does that happen? It does. But that charade cannot last forever. Because even though God is gracious and He gives us space to repent, If we don't, eventually he has to do something. Saul, 
he could have had an amazing impact upon his nation. He had endless potential, all of the Lord's backing. But his life is so up and down because he never established in his heart that he would follow the Lord. He had an unstable heart because he never established in his heart that he was going to follow the Lord. So my exhortation to you as we close this out tonight is this. Let's be those who do establish our heart, in our heart, that we will follow the Lord. Amen? Let's not be double-minded and therefore unstable in all our ways. Let's be those who humble ourselves, who submit to God, resist the devil, and receive his grace so our hands can be cleansed and our hearts can be purified. Because God promises that if we'll draw near to him, what will he do? He will draw near to us. Let's all stand. Well, Lord, here we are. You know everything that's in our minds, everything that's in our hearts. You know everything we've struggled with. And so, Lord, we do not want to be those who resist you. We don't want to be prideful. We don't want to be arrogant. We don't want to be selfish. We don't want to be stubborn. Our desire is just to submit to you, to draw near to you, to resist the devil and to receive your grace. So Lord, will you protect every man and woman in this room, including myself, from ourselves? Would you heap upon us grace upon grace as we just submit ourselves to you tonight? Because Lord, we can't do it without you. Lord, your servant Paul said that if we live after the flesh, we'll just wilt away, we'll die. But your beautiful promise is that if we mortify the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit, we're not on our own, but by your Spirit, we'll live. And Jesus, we want that abundant life that you promised to us. We don't want any skeletons in our closet. We, don't, we, want, to, we want to be those, Lord, that are blameless. Lord, that we might shine as lights for you. Not just for a few years, not just for a few moments, even long after we're gone, should you tarry. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.